0: Jesus House in pursuit of God, discovering purpose, maximizing potential, impacting lives. This message is being brought to you from Jesus House London. God bless you. He is risen. That is what today is about. Our Lord and Savior. Is the reason Christ? Last week was Palm Sunday. Uh, the week after Palm Sunday would have been a, a, a very fast moving one in Jesus' time. Um, from riding in in that triumphal procession, uh, he would have had the Last Supper with his disciples where he instituted the communion, uh, which is a, a major part of our Christian faith. He would have moved on to the Garden of Gethsemane where he wrestled in prayer with you and I on his mind. Uh, He wrestled because of the enormity of what he was about to face uh, at the the cross. But because of his love for you and I, he submitted himself to the will of God to go to the cross. Uh, As he finished the prayer, really settled it in the place of prayer. And and like I always say, we settle things first in the Place of prayer. His own disciple leads the religious police uh, from the religious council and betrays him in the garden and hands him over to be tried and eventually crucified. He's dragged by the religious police before the Sanhedrin, the religious council. He's tried and he's mocked. They spat at him, they taunted him, they mocked him. And then from there he's taken before the governor of the land, Pontius Pilate, uh, where uh, Pontius Pilate sits in the place of judgment over him. Pontius Pilate has the intention, knowing that he's a just man, as 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 the Bible testifies, that his wife says to him, uh, knowing that he's a just man, Pontius Pilate has the intention of releasing him, and he has uh, a a culture, a a tradition where uh, on on that occasion. He releases a criminal who is guilty, Um, and he wanted to release Jesus Christ because he knew that this was a just man. He had done nothing wrong. But then the the, the religious leaders stirred up the crowd to bay for his blood, crucify him, crucify him, they cried. Now Pontius Pilate, sensing that he potentially had a rebellion on his hands, handed Jesus over to the soldiers to go and be crucified. And the Bible records that account in Matthew's Gospel, the 27th chapter, uh, from the 27th verse to the 31st verse. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. When they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! Then they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off him, put his own clothes on on him and led him away to be crucified. They mocked him. They spat at him. They taunted him. His own creation. And yet he held himself back. The son of God, God himself, uh, the third person of the Godhead, because he knew he had to go to the cross for you and I. They took him to the cross. They crucified him. The Bible records how he dies in Matthew's gospel, the 27th chapter and the 46th verse. The Bible says, And at three o'clock, Jesus shouted with a mighty voice in Aramaic, Eli, Eli, lama sabactini.' that is, my God, my God, why have you deserted me? The enormity of that statement we probably will never fully understand. Here was Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Uh, Jesus, the Son of God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. A perfect relationship they had. For the first time, God turned his back on Jesus simply because of you and I. Because he had to bear your sin and my sin on himself. And God had to put his wrath on his anger against sin on his beloved son, just so you and I could be free from the clutches, the grasp of sin. It's an enormous thing to try to imagine that he became a substitute for you and I. He became everything that is negative for you and I. He was the epitome of poverty on that cross. He bore the sin of all humanity, yours and mine on that cross. And he did that so that you and I could be free from sin to, to live a life of worshiping God. And the, the Bible then records in, in the 51st and 52nd verse of that chapter, Matthew 27, at that moment, the veil in the Holy of Holies was torn in two from the top to the bottom. The earth shook violently, rocks were split apart, and graves were opened Then many of the holy ones who had died were brought back to life and came out of their graves. Oh, if only we grasp the full import of that statement. If there's any statement that typifies the love of God and the grace of God, it surely must be that at the moment he let out that shout, at the moment he let the last breath out of himself, the veil in the Holy of Holies was torn in two from top to bottom. I remember reading an account of the thickness of that veil, that curtain, and the height of it. It would be impossible for it to split of its own accord. You would have to take a very sharp instrument and use all your strength, probably need two, three, four people to be able to cut through it. But symbolically, as Jesus died on the cross, that veil was torn into no natural hand tearing it, it was torn into supernaturally. Why what was symbolic about this? What was the message in the veil being torn into? Why do I think this is such an act of grace and, and a demonstration of God's love? I'll tell you why. The veil protected the, the Holy of Holies, the innermost chamber uh, in the temple, the place where the Ark of Covenant would sit, the place where the children of Israel believed was the actual dwelling place of the God of Israel, that he was invisibly enthroned upon this, upon, on the top of this Ark of the Covenant that was symbolic of his presence. Now, only the high priest, could go into the Holy of Holies and he could go on only one day, uh, the day of atonement, uh, Yom Kippur, as the Jews would call it, which took place once a year. Now think about it. Once a year, one man would, with trembling and fear because he never knew whether he would be struck down in the Holy of Holies. Uh, The stories have it that the bells that were attached uh, to his, his garment, his priestly garment, were for, amongst other things, people to listen out to. And as long as the bells were jingling, then the people knew that he hadn't been struck down by God because he had made a mistake, possibly, in his ministration. But once the bells stopped jingling, then they would basically, with a rope attached to him, pull him out. That's the way the story goes. But what the Bible tells us is that he would go in, the high priest alone, and he would carry the blood of sacrifice and he would go there to plead with God for for the sins of himself, his family, and the nation to be atoned. Now, I just need you to think about this. Once a year only, he would go into the Holy of Holies. He was the only one who could go into the presence of God. But when Jesus died, the veil was torn in two. That was to signify that anybody could come by the blood of Jesus Christ, no longer by the blood of lambs or by the blood of animals, but by the blood of Jesus, anybody could come at any time into the Holy of Holies. What is more uh, a picture of grace than that? That you and I can wake up at any time and come straight into the very presence of God and talk to this Holy God, this creator of the ends of the earth, and all because of the price that Jesus paid at the cross. As he died, the way was made open so that once we accept him into our lives as our Savior, at any point in time, at any time of the day, at any time of the month, any time of the year, we can come boldly into the very presence of God, something that the people who didn't have the privilege of Jesus dying for them on the cross, the way we have did not have, uh, whilst they related to God. Amazing the grace of God. And straight from there, after he had let out this cry, the veil was was torn in two. In two Joseph of Arimathea comes to collect his body, and he's buried in a ball, in Joseph a tomb that Joseph had. Our Lord and Savior, the Creator of the ends of the earth is buried in a borrowed tomb. And as the Bible records, as he was buried, the Bible says in Matthew's Gospel, the 27th chapter and the 61st verse, and Mary Magdalene was there, and the other Mary sitting opposite the tomb. As Joseph took him, and wrapped him in a clean linen cloth, laid him in the new tomb which he had hewn out of the rock, rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. The Bible says, and Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting opposite the tomb. I wonder what their thoughts were. They would have sat there numb with the shock of it all. Their whole world had literally caved in. Their dreams shattered. Their expectations cut off. Disappointment would not even begin to describe it. A hopelessness that enveloped them. A despair that was a dark cloak that settled on them. The feeling of loneliness of being exposed, of being vulnerable. The pain in their hearts, the grief. This was their savior, their king, their master. They would have had dreams of him living on and possibly in a physical sense, ascending a physical throne to rule them as king. It had all ended right before their eyes and now his body lay like any normal human being, in a tomb and a stone had been rolled against the opening of the tomb, cutting him off even in death from them. I am sure the grief was suffocating. I suspect suicidal thoughts would have swirled around their minds, but then eventually they had to leave. For you see, it was Friday, And the next day, Saturday, was the Sabbath. Two broken, weary, disconsolate women trudged along with the weight of the world on their shoulders. Their shoulders hunched as they held each other, the only comfort they had. Their Savior was not there. What of all the things he had told them? What about the picture he had painted? about his father having a home for them in heaven. One of all the things he had taught them, is this how it was going to end? Was it over? But then they had to hurry because it was Friday night. And woe betide them if the religious police found them moving around on the Sabbath on Saturday. I guess they hurried to their homes and they were left with their thoughts. I can only imagine the emotions they would have gone through on on Saturday as they dealt with what had happened. They would have been so uncertain of the future. They would have shivered with fear, trembled at the thought of tomorrow, afraid for what the future held. The emotions that would have felt are emotions that you and I would probably have faced at one time or the other. And many will be facing these emotions now. The fear, the anxiety, they would have wrestled with this on Saturday. The deep, deep pit of despair, the hopelessness. What is it all about, anyway? The disappointment when you've, when you've put your hopes in something and it suddenly crashes before you. The, the, the yawning, yawning hole of disappointment that you can sometimes find yourself spiraling down. The loneliness. And you might not understand it if you've never been there. When loneliness comes and it is almost tangible, it is almost a person. The loneliness. The vulnerability. You suddenly feel exposed. It's like you've been stripped naked. All your protection is gone. Your armor has been taken from you. The pain. And some of you know what I mean. The pain. It feels like there's a rock in your heart. It feels sometimes the pain so suffocating that you feel like you can't breathe. You feel sometimes like you're going to die. The pain is too much. And sometimes it's physical pain, and I've seen that when people sat are going through some, some forms of sickness or, disease, or are afflicted by disease, the physical pain. But then emotional pain can be as bad as physical pain, where you feel like your heart is broken. It's in pieces. The weariness. You're just drained, just tired of life, just unable to cope. You can't even get out of bed. They would have flirted with depression and sadly we are seeing the result of that with the mental health issues that we have to cope with in today's society. They would have been grieving. The darkness of grief. The black hole of grief. a, A grief that has no hope. They certainly would have been overwhelmed and the uncertainty would have been difficult to live with. But then Sunday morning comes. I always wonder why they went back to the tomb. I've thought about it many times. Where did they go back hoping against hope that it was a bad nightmare, that they would get there and the stone wasn't rolled across the door of the tomb and their savior was alive. Did they go there because they were drawn to the place where he was buried as some sort of memorial, to just go and be near him, even in death? We will never find out why they went there until we meet them in heaven. And by God's grace, we will meet them in heaven and ask them why they went there. But go, they did. They went back to the tomb. The Bible records it in Matthew's gospel, the 20th chapter. The Bible says, after the Sabbath ended, at the first light of dawn, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to take a look at the tomb, at the first light of dawn. I'm sure you know they couldn't have slept all night. With what they had been through, there's no way they could have slept. And some of you understand it. When what you're dealing with keeps you awake at night, you want to shut your eyes, but the images, the pictures, the thoughts, the anxiety, the worry, the fear, the uncertainty of tomorrow, the pain, the grief, the vulnerability, where you are so weary, but your body refuses to cooperate with your mind and lull you to sleep. Some people understand what I mean. They must have felt the same way. So the Bible says, at the crack of dawn, both of them headed back to the tomb. Then the Bible records the next few verses, the most amazing verses in the Bible. The Bible says, Suddenly, the earth shook violently beneath their feet as the angel of the Lord Jehovah descended from heaven. I'm reading from the Passion Translation. Lightning flashed all around him, and his robe was, a, was, a, was dazzling white. The guards were stunned and terrified, lying motionless like dead men, then the angel walked up to the tomb, rolled away the stone, and sat on top of it. And you know, I love that phrase. Even as I, as I shared with you, it brings goosebumps. I mean, this is mission accomplished. The Bible says the, the angel arrives with a lot of dram, a dramatic entrance, lightning flashing, his robes are dazzling white, and these women are watching it. The ground starts to move under their feet, and the ground starts to shake violently. The guards are stunned and terrified, eyes wide open at what is happening. They fall down and lie motionless as dead. Whether they were pretending out of fear or whether they were whether they fainted, we will never find out. And then the angel majestically, and a message, an assignment from God that is going to change your life and change my life. The angel majestically walks up to the tomb, rolls away the stone, I guess because it's an angel. People would have struggled to put that stone in place. But an angel with a flick of his finger, mighty, powerful angel, rolls away the stone. And then to say to us, mission accomplished, sits on top of the stone. Oh, I love the Bible. The Bible goes on to say, the women were breathless and and terrified. And wouldn't you be if you had seen that? Don't don't, don't, don't smile, don't laugh at them, don't mock them. If you had seen that, some of us would have fainted. But the women were breathless and, and terrified until the angel said to them, there's no reason to be afraid. I know you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He isn't here. He has risen victoriously just as he said. You know what I want to say to you? God is not a man that he should lie is not the son of man that he should change his time has he said it the bible says will he not do it everything jesus said in the end we will be able to say just as he said the angel says he has risen victoriously just as he said come inside the tomb and see the place where our lord was lying then run and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead I give you his message. I am going ahead of you in Galilee and you will see me there. The Bible goes on. They rushed quickly to tell his disciples and their hearts were deep in wonder and filled with great joy. Wonder, awe, reverence. You know, there's a phrase that comes out of West Africa, say in Sierra Leone, in Ghana, in Nigeria, where Pigeon English is spoken. They say, this God is too much. And that's exactly sums up how they felt that this God is awesome. He has risen. He is not dead. They crucified him, but he has overcome the crucifixion. He has conquered death. He has conquered the grave. He has become victorious, as he always said. This God is awesome, in excitement, but also trembling with awe. Some, some, some Bible translations say fear, but it's not the fear that we know. It. So it's a fear that is born out of a reverence for God. When you see an awesome display of God's mighty, glorious, majestic power, you are speechless, you are held spellbound, you are in awe, you are, you are in fear, but the fear of reverence. So in deep wonder and filled with great joy. Now, isn't it interesting that because he had risen, suddenly the emotions that were negative, the fear, the hopelessness, the anxiety, the worry, suddenly had disappeared. These women who walked to the tomb in the depths of sadness and sorrow, were running away from the tomb with the great news that he is risen and the bible says they were in deep wonder and full of joy the fact that he was alive had changed everything it was the ultimate game changer they suddenly had hope for the future they were no longer afraid Literally, they would have said, bring it on life, bring it on, bring it on, bring it on whatever life has to throw. My Savior is alive. I'm not going to face it alone. No matter what life brings my way, I can face it. The future no longer holds fear for me. It's no longer uncertain. He is alive. He will guide us. He will teach us. He will pray for us and pray with us. He will protect us. He will lead us to his heavenly Father. He is alive. There are two metaphors of life that struck me as I prepared to share this with you. The first one is a house. If you assume and see your life as a house. When any stranger comes to the door and knocks on the door, if you can handle the stranger, you can open the door. But now and again, there will come people who don't mean well. They want to harm you. They want to bring shame to you and your family. Uh, they come with evil intent. Now, in a sense, they have more power than you on your own. They are more. They are, you're terrified of them. Now, if they come to your door and Jesus is living in the house that is symbolic of your life, guess what? He opens the door. And when he confronts them, I'm sure you know what will happen. None of them can stand against him because their boss, Jesus, overcame him at the cross, went down into the pits of hell, wrested control of our lives and our future from him and ascended to the heavens. I pray that you will allow Jesus into the house that is representative of your life. Another metaphor that came to mind was where we see our lives as a boat that is sailing on the seas of life. And sometimes the seas can be calm and placid. But now and again, we enter turbulent waters. We have a storm that comes. The waves rise and are tossing the boat, you know, up and down. The inhabitants of the boat are afraid. But if you have in that boat, stir in the boat, Jesus, then you know that the one that said to the storm, peace be still, because he's in the boat and because he's alive, not dead, then you know that it is impossible for that boat to capsize. Will you let Jesus into the boat of your life? The two Marys, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, must have said to themselves, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. No matter what tomorrow brings, because he lives and because he lives in me, I can face whatever tomorrow brings because it is not me facing it, but it is him facing it on my behalf. And you know, there's no better way, I thought, to drive home this point than for this song, Because He Lives, I Can Face Tomorrow.